love of money. Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Uh, Good morning. Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640. Wolfgang Klein, your host. Jack Hartle, co-host of the show. Got a good show once again lined up for you. Of course, opening up with a little smoking from Boston. Oh, my goodness. 41 years ago, that record came out. I am dating myself with that puppy. But, hey, great record. And we got a guest standing by from Boston, uh, one of our asset allocators, Mr. Brian Reynolds. He's going to be followed by one of our tech analysts, Matt Ramsey, who's going to get into some more artificial intelligence and Internet of Things and connectivity and driverless cars. Very fascinating stuff lined up with Matt. We may get a little financial planning lesson with Mike Bellamy, how much you need to save to retire, and we're going to give you some specific dollar amounts and dates. But we're also going to bring on some star power onto the show, um, Joey Scalera a.k.a. Joey Vendetta, Torontonian Q listeners. Uh, yes, indeed, uh, he's now over at Live Nation, uh, heading up industrial relations, and he's going to join us and just talk to us about the changing landscape of live performances. But let's get back to Boston with my buddy Brian Reynolds. Brian, I want to thank you for joining us this morning on Hi-Fi Radio, sir. Great to be here. Uh, so, Brian, we've been, um, Jack and I, d- digging deeper into your work, and uh, we, we must say that your work is very uh, intriguing, very, very intriguing. Uh, it's it's very different approach that you're taking with this uh, with the market, and uh, I'll summarize by saying, according to your work, uh, you think this bull market has another three, perhaps four years left in it because of a phenomenon known as credit fund demand. Uh, so l- let's go back to basics on it. Back to your theses. Uh, court theses, what is it? And try to give it to us in layman terms so we can truly appreciate the magnitude of it? Well, it's very simple. U.S. public pensions are the dominant global investor. They're about over $15 trillion plus leverage. They need to make 7.5%, which is a crazy number. But while they're bringing that money in, they generate the greatest credit boom ever seen in history. And that puts cash on the corporate balance sheets as companies sell bonds to the funds they hire. Companies take that money and they buy back their stock. That's all there is to it. So again, let's go through it once again. Um, interest rates are historically low. Uh, corporate debt, uh, basically running at around what, 3%, 4% interest rates. So if these pension funds want to make that 7%, and they can't do it in equity. We have to remember, they have to do it in the debt market, the bond market. So if John Deere is offering them 3.5%, General Electric offers them 3.5%, you're telling me they're buying that paper, but then they're going to borrow some more money to buy more of that paper to basically juice up their yield to that 6-7%. And on the flip side, the John Deere's, the General Electric's of the world are taking that borrowed money and buying back shares. Exactly. Or they go into new schemes called shadow banking, which is non-traditional lending, which puts more cash on the balance sheets and allows the pensions to take more risk and get a higher yield. You know, it's funny because the word shadow banking sounds shady. Um, it but is. It is what? It is. Oh, it is shady. Uh, but again, it's, you, you describe it basically as non, it's basically non-bank lending. So uh, I myself, if I do some peer-to-peer lending, that would be shadow banking, but that could be very legit, couldn't it? There's a spectrum of non-traditional lending, but the best examples of it were from the 1990s when we did it with WorldCom and Enron. When we lent money to them in non-traditional methods, we helped inflate stock prices in the 1990s, uh-huh. and when those deals unraveled, it led to a disaster. Then in the next cycle, we did it all over again with subprime. Now we're doing it again with slightly different instruments in different sectors of the economy because our pensions, once again, need to make 
above market returns. And when they reach for yield like that, they help inflate stock prices while, the way, while they're going up. And then when the disaster happens, when the yield curve reverts, it leads to a bigger disaster. Now, again, you, you have a chart that you showed, Jack, and I, again, I, I wish this had some visual component to this, this, this performance of ours right now, but it doesn't. So we have to sort of uh, use theater of the mind to, to work their way through these graphs here. But you, you showed in the graph um, the, 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 the upward trajectory of this type of equity buying, i.e. companies buying back their stock. That, that, that chart is going from lower left to upper right. It's moving higher. Yet retail participation in the current bull market of, what, six, seven, eight years has basically been flat. Um, pension funds have actually been selling down a bit of equity booking profit. I remember them actually doing this a couple of years ago and, 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 and crystallizing those gains. Uh, what's the other word? Immunizing the gains. Um, uh, so is that the fact? The truth is the bull market is exclusive by companies buying back stock, not you and I driving it higher with our annual 401k and RSP deposits? That's been the driver of this bull market. It was the driver of the last bull market. After the bursting of the internet bubble, people generally don't want stocks. So companies themselves have had to get their stock prices up to reward shareholders, and they've done that by borrowing either directly from pensions and the funds they hire or by doing shadow banking mechanisms. Mm-hmm. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to grab ourselves some coffee, uh, play a few spots, and we're going to come right back to Brian Reynolds in a moment. Money. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. Money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Welcome back. Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640. Good morning to you. May you have yourself a wonderful day, and uh, may we help educate and entertain you this morning. So get your coffee, turn up the radio, and let's have some fun here on Hi-Fi Radio. Uh, Brian, uh, Jack's going to come in with a couple of big, big questions for you right here, right now. So, Jack, over to you, my friend. Brian, you're just talking about the the shadow banking industry, just how shady it is out there and all the innovation, uh, so to speak, that they have. Um, what about the regulation around the shadow banking industry? We've got uh, Dodd-Frank that regulates the banks. Who's the, the regulator of the shadow banking industry and, um, you know, what are they up to? Well, there is no regulator of the shadow bank industry. Actually, the shadow bank industry sprung up to go around those regulations. So, for example, Dodd-Frank limits commercial mortgage-backed transactions. And so shadow bankers have learned to create private REITs that mimic those instruments. But since Dodd-Frank doesn't address REITs, we can do whatever we want with those. So just looking at it with Trump's um, commitment to, uh, I guess, repeal and replace Dodd-Frank, so what do you think about that? Is it somewhat irrelevant then? I think it's irrelevant. I think shadow bankers have essentially repealed and replaced Dodd-Frank already. Um, I think most shadow bankers would tell the president, please don't waste your time rolling back these regulations. We've already found ways around them, and we're coming up with new ways to lever up the U.S. economy and the global economy without having to worry about rolling back regulations. Well, you you mentioned that because we we speak here at Canaccord how you have a synchronized global recovery. Your latest piece says shadow banking has now gone global. Uh, uh, How large is shadow banking relative to traditional banking? Do we know? Bloomberg has estimated as over $80 trillion. It may be bigger than that. Um, the U.S. stock market is about $30 trillion. So 
it's probably two to three times the size of the U.S. stock market, to put it in perspective. Wow. And 30, 40, 30 to 40 years ago, that number was zero. So that tells you the tremendous growth that this type of activity has had in the last few decades. Let's, let's talk about innovation, because Wall Street and Bay Street are very, very innovative. You know, up here in Bay Street, we, we got so innovative, we came up with a marijuana ETF, my friend. So, huh, top us on that one, Poppy. Tell us, what type of, what type of innovation is going on in the credit market? Well, in the last week or so, we've identified three new ways to shadow bank. The city of Chicago is going to securitize sales tax payments from the state of Illinois. How would, sorry, how would it do that? They, the state refunds sales taxes to Chicago, but sometimes it takes a year or two or three to get the money. Chicago can just issue a bond backed by those payments and get their cash up front. Oh, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a pay loan. Uh, it's like a yeah, loan, uh, loan advance on your pay. Then they put the money in their pensions. The huh. pensions buy bonds. Companies buy back their stocks with the proceeds. So, so in fact, taxpayers are in fact participating in this bull market. Oh, they're, taxpayers, they're cre- tax, taxpayers are very much on the hook for this. This, this is at, this is at the core of, of shadow banking. This week alone, this week in addition, the state of Pennsylvania announced they're going to start securitizing their state liquor store revenues. Um, look, in, in the interest, of, in, sorry, Brian, in the interest of time here. So, so we're speaking about greed right now. How to make seven and a half percent, and this is how they're doing it to to achieve their objectives. Let's now talk about fear, my good friend. Fear and greed they go together. So, when this ends, when this credit cycle uh, hits a crescendo, uh, you say it's going to get pretty darn ugly. Uh, how bad could it get, and when would that period of fear really kick in? Well, as I mentioned earlier, this is the same type of thing we did for WorldCom and Enron and for subprime in the U.S. So when it ends, and it usually ends two years after the yield curve inverts, this could be a potential, you know, uh, bear market and credit crisis like we saw in 2000 and 2008. As bad as 08, perhaps, eh? So down 50%. And the question, of course, Brian, is what level we're going to be coming off of, right? Well, that's, that's the thing, because if this goes on another three to five years, the stock market could go significantly higher before it goes back down. How much higher do you think the market can go from here? Well, if the trend was to continue, you know, the S&P would be at 4,400 in five years. I can't say that it's definitely going to get there, but that's the trend that's been established over the last eight years. And the shadow banking activity is designed to keep stocks going at that trend. One last question for you, Brian. What about China? Where does China play in all this? Again, there's some elections coming up in China, uh, some change in the guard, uh, and, and they certainly want to keep the market afloat. Uh, do, you have any, do you have any comment and any factoids that you can help us with in terms of China's influence oh, sure. in all this? They sell us goods in the U.S. The U.S. doesn't have money to pay for them, so we give them pieces of paper called treasuries. You can't eat treasuries, so we've taught China how to shadow bank treasuries to turn them into currency to feed their people. So when we have the next credit crisis in the U.S., it's going to be bad here, but it's going to be even worse for China. And that was the case in 2008. You can look at the Chinese stock market and how much it went down in 2008 when we had our financial crisis. It's probably going to be that magnified in the next downturn. Wow, that's frightening stuff. Well, I'm going to talk about something equally interesting and maybe frightening as well right after this as we get on our good friend Matt Ramsey and talk artificial intelligence. Brian, it was a real pleasure having you on. As always, my good friend, I want to wish you a great weekend. And folks, stand by. we got more great show right after this. I want money. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. That's what I want. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. That's what I want.
love of money. Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Ah, little Thomas Doty. For you, that came out in 1982, so we're fast forwarding a bit here, which is a good thing. Uh, set up for a very, very good reason. We got Matt Ramsey on the line. He is a tech media and telecom analyst uh, with Canaccord. Uh, basically covers a lot of semi-stocks and uh, very, very, very bright fella. Uh, Matt, when Jack saw you uh, speak, was it in Boston, Jack? Yeah, he was down in Boston. Yeah, so, so, the yes. growth conference. So um, his, his, his uh, enviable position in terms of career was what? Tell me the story. It's a good little story on him. Oh, I think, uh, Matt, you were saying down there that you wanted to be, uh, were you a chip engineer at the time? Is that correct? Uh, thanks, guys. And, and first of all, thanks thanks to you both for having me on. Happy, yeah. happy to participate. But yeah, my uh, prior to my analyst career, I, I was a computer architecture guy doing server system design and server microprocessor design in Silicon Valley and then in Austin. So it's been, uh, it's been a fun and exciting career change. It's brought with it some industry experience and a big network of folks that I rely on in my research. But uh, um, still some very exciting things going on in the space that I'm sure we'll get to. But uh, it's a great network of people to rely on, and, and I would say my day-to-day job is about as astronomically different from what I used to do in industry as it could possibly be, but it's still good fun. Well, it, it certainly causes you to stretch that gray matter, and your gray matter is pretty big, man. Uh, so look, let, let's go through it. Um, I, I, I invited you on the show to talk about artificial intelligence, uh, the Internet of Things, connectivity, driverless cars, chips, GPUs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's such a far-reaching uh, sector, but, uh, you know, th- th- this whole shared economy uh, dovetails right into all of what we're talking about here, too. So, you know, tell us, well, what's new, what's hot in, 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 in your world? Jordan, I think you touched on a number of things there. Um, I think the most important and topical trend right now in the semiconductor market, and it extends into Internet and a, no- a number of other sectors, is the concept of artificial intelligence, basically having machines not just sort and collate data, but able to think about them, think about the data, learn about the data, and interpret the data around them. And that comes in a number of forms. And the key end markets that we see relying on artificial intelligence to drive growth are, one, intelligent and autonomous cars, to the Internet of Things and interpreting the data from this wide variety of connected things, and third, in the data center um, from the big cloud service providers trying to figure out how to make sense out of the huge swaths of data that they get from a number of sources and how to target content and advertising to the consumers. So there's three different, I think, big vectors that artificial intelligence um, sits on top of that are going to drive growth for the industry I cover and for, for several industries in technology and all be things that touch consumers very acutely over over the next 10 to 15 years as, as these sciences take off. So those are the areas that we're really focused on, um, uh, particularly automotive um, today um, and just topical because we brought um, with NVIDIA stock hitting all-time highs on the back of data center and automotive trends in artificial intelligence. Um, I think it just remains super topical in my space. You think NVIDIA is going higher from here? Um, I, I do. I think it has the potential to. I mean, we've. It, it's it's interesting. We've... Uh, been amazingly bullish on that story for the last two years, and I remember sort of arguing with investors and clients two years ago whether the move in that stock from 20 to 30 dollars we had missed it or not. And, <laughs> and, and at 195 today, it's, oh. it's almost like analysts are tripping over themselves to take price targets up as fast as possible. But I think there's Ooh. a business there for Nvidia to grow from a business that was 
well below $500 million a year in data center GPU sales for artificial intelligence towards a, a $5 billion business over the next three or four years. Um, their CEO um, and a really innovative guy and a leader in, in this market, Jensen Wong, has talked about an $8 billion opportunity for them in driverless cars. Um, and that's, of course, on top of the core gaming franchise at NVIDIA that the company's known for. So that's just an example of the, the hyper growth and the hyper appreciation in stocks that's been driven by some of the early leaders in this space. And, and there's a whole bunch of companies investing in these sciences to try to catch up. I know Jack, Jack, sorry, Jack, Jack caught you on the, on the conference call this morning as well, and, and, and you uh, tripped him up a little bit, which is tough to do for Jack. He's so smart. But you're speaking about uh, parallel chips, and then uh, after that conference call, we got on the phone, you're talking about your, your stock, Amberella. Uh, can, can you talk about that, i.e., the human eyes, why these chips are acting like cameras, you need two of them uh, for driverless cars, because fascinating uh, engineering there. No, it is, and it's, it's interesting. You brought up um, Amberella. Our team put out a, a longer research report about it today, and, and the company um, does the chips that take the data from video inputs um, and analyze them. So they, they've had chips and security cameras and sports and action cameras in the past and are working towards cameras in the automotive market. And one of the key things that they've tried to do is engineer a processing chip to take images from two parallel cameras at the same time. Essentially the way uh, an animal or a human being notices depth in an image is because you have two eyes and you can take the difference between the images that you're collecting from your pair of points and sort of organically compute depth. Um, wow. It's very, very hard for a camera on one image or one single photograph or even a data stream to understand which items are further away or closer to the camera. But if you get, basically you process two camera images in parallel at the same time, merge it into one image, and the computer can then understand depth. And that's one of the key innovations that this company, Amberella, has done in an emerging chip that they're coming out with called a computer vision chip that allows a car or a security camera to see with depth. Sounds, sounds pretty important to me. Matt, hang around. we got some more questions for you if you don't mind, pal, all right? All right, sure. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. Love of Money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Guess what, folks? Probably going to have some gray skies. Who wouldn't want to live in California? Well, we can fantasize, and we can speak to our friends in California, and we are doing just that. Matt Ramsey, live from L.A., to talk to us about technology and artificial intelligence and driverless cars. And, of course, Jack being Jack, you must talk about the liability around just that. Yeah, just uh, I guess the um, accident or the um, in California, autonomous driving has been approved. Is that correct, Matt? Uh, just recently? Yeah, that's right. There's been some some new legislation through the state of California, um, basically allowing companies like Tesla and Google and and a number of others to to begin to have driverless car tests on the road and sort of paving the way for autonomous vehicles in the future. Um, in a conversation sort of offline that we've had this morning. Um, it's an interesting debate as to um, the rest of the regulatory and insurance and liability laws that are going to have to come um, in different geographies around the world to support this. For an example, if you and I crash our cars into each other, then we can have some debate about who's liable. 
um, and it's either you or me. Um, if two autonomous vehicles crash into each other, then who's liable? Is it the, the company that designed the computer system and the software to drive the cars? Is it the car OEM that manufactured the cars? Um, is it the driver? Um, there's a lot of uncertainty there, and I think there will be a point in three to five years where autonomous vehicle penetration and, and sales will not be limited by technology but by um, insurance and liability laws in different jurisdictions around the world. So there's a lot that needs to get figured out there. I spend all my time worrying about technology, but there's some, some big, bigger social and financial impacts that are out there that are going to govern some of these markets. Sure, and you were just talking about uh, artificial intelligence and the chips um, that, that go into uh, this technology. What, like, if you have two people going down a road, say walking down a road, you mentioned offline, like you said, um, would the chip actually decide, like if there's two people that it could hit, would it decide which one that it would choose? Like, how, how would that work? And who, who would be liable? <laughs> there's a lot of uncertainty out there, and I don't pretend to have all the answers. But, yeah. but there's, there's certainly, um, if, if I'm driving a car, me personally, and yeah. I'm in charge of the vehicle, and, and a group of folks runs out in the road, I can, there's, there's an element in society that says, hey, the driver didn't expect that, he panicked, maybe he hit someone, and there's some sort of an accident and, and non-liability aspect to it. When you start having computers that can program and run at multiple gigahertz doing these calculations to decide where the car goes, there's a piece of an algorithm that's going to actually have to make a decision of, for example, which person to hit and who's liable for that decision. Um, it's, an, it's a very interesting piece of the puzzle that the industry is struggling with um, and that regulators around the world have to come to grips with. Because I. And we, we mentioned some statistics in an online com offline conversation that roughly 35,000 people in the U.S. die annually um, in automotive wrecks. Um, if you, through autonomous vehicles and safety, take that number down by a drastic amount, that's obviously a huge savings for um, the country. Uh, but what happens socially when the first autonomous car runs over uh, and is at fault for, for killing someone? What, how does society react to that? And I think... And how does the regulation and the insurance liability laws react to that? I think there's some big open questions here that, that a lot of us are going to have to, to struggle with over time. But the technology is coming, that's for sure. Yeah, Matt, you're, you're in L.A. I assume you have the odd traffic jam there, don't you? A little uh, <laughs> bottleneck. Because we're in Toronto here, and it's a disaster. And with all the constructions and cranes going up, it's even worse. So give us some good news, because you know many of us fear artificial intelligence, i.e. is going to put us out of work. We were on the phone with the New York Stock Exchange last week, and boy, oh boy, back in the day, there was 5,500 employees on the floor. Now there's 350, thanks to algos and computers. So th th that's the dark side of AI. But let's talk about the bright side. Let's talk about uh, pollution. Let's talk about traffic jams. Let's talk about Jack getting to the Muskokas on time. <laughs> no, there's certainly uh, a number of things in the automotive space since that's where we're focusing the conversation. One is, is fuel efficiency, having cars be able to trail each other closer behind, both autonomous and, and um, getting much better uh, fuel efficiency from the lack of aerodynamic drag. There's cars that can, if, if every car on the road is autonomous and they can all talk to each other, you can potentially merge intersections of traffic at speed rather than having the, the odd traffic jam, as you mentioned, that happens every five seconds out here in L.A. Mm -hmm. um, there are certainly safety issues with cars that are 
obviously not going to crash into each other and have massive sensors and cameras that allow us to avoid accidents. Um, there's productivity gains if you can work or read or sleep or any of those things during my lovely 90-minute commute to LAX. Wow. Um, what kind of productivity gains socially can we have and, and from a societal basis from that? So there's a ton of, of, of great things that are going to come from AI. I think the, the natural reaction is to be a little scared of it, and we talked about some of the liability laws that have to come along with it, but um, there's, there's some big societal benefits from it. I'm a bit mixed on it personally. I, I, I don't know. I don't love my commute to LAX, but I don't, uh, I, I don't think – Working an extra 90 minutes is something I'm ready to sign up for, but uh, there's certainly some things you can do in the car there. Um, give, you, you can know, spend time with your kids. You don't have to work the extra 90 minutes. You can enjoy it. Take up a hobby. I don't know. You can come, come on the radio more often with Jack and I. Uh, we, we can help fill that time for you and make it entertaining for you. Um, <laughs> tell, tell me something. In, in the, again, interest of time here. You mentioned what, what's going on in Germany in the trucking industry. A lot of transport trucks, a lot of truck drivers in Toronto. So share with us what those Germans are up to. So there are some programs in, in countries, particularly in Europe, Germany is one that I mentioned in another conversation, where you can have multiple semi-tractor trailers um, with basically no driver, where the, the lead truck is driven by a driver and the other trucks can autonomously follow along a couple feet behind them. It cuts down on aerodynamic drag. You obviously need less drivers. Um, there's a, a huge safety element to it. So there's a number of things like that that are going on um, that can really increase productivity and low, lower fuel demands for the trucking industry globally. Um, as you said, there's some concern around job losses in a number of industries from AI, manufacturing, transportation, and a whole slew of other things. Um, but I think the, the societal benefits of some of these technologies will be, will be immense over time, and, and that's where a ton of my companies are putting um, significant R&D dollars. Matt, you're a pleasure to be with my friend, and we're going to stay in the state of L.A. Folks, stay tuned. More to come right after this. Stay with us. There's more show still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Wakey, wakey, Toronto. Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640, Wolfgang Klein. On the line is none other than Joey Vendetta to give the show some star power this morning. Joey, thank you very much for joining us on Hi-Fi Radio. Of course, my pleasure. How are you today? Oh, I'm just terrific, Joey. So uh, you're now you are the head of industry relations at Live Nation. Uh, gee, last time I saw you was actually uh, on the streets of LA, but uh, seven eight years ago, and then saying you moved back to Toronto, but you're still with Live Nation. And uh, it was a stock that Jack and I have been watching for a number of years. Haven't yet uh, purchased the name uh, because I I probably know a little too much about the business, how difficult the business is of live concert production. The industry's obviously changed. It's gotten bigger. You consolidated you know bob left sets would say you've gotten more corporate um but what's going through jack's mind in my mind unfortunately is the passing of classic rock artists uh we lost tom petty a week ago david bowie not too long ago uh and it seems that the that the tickets buyers are those who want to see these classic rock acts so um how are you filling the stadiums and 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 you know your 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 inventory of talent uh how are you doing to doing to replenish that well, I mean, there's artists like the Coldplay's of the world, obviously U2, 
um, you know, Luke Bryan, Zach Brown, the Foo Fighters. There's there's always a band that's going to fill a stadium. I mean, the business is better than it's ever been. The if you look at the economies of scale of the business, there's much more efficiency. There's much more technology involved. The fan experiences are better than they've ever been. And the artists are touring more than they ever have. And it's a business that is a growth business. It's by no means mature. And global markets and emerging markets are opening up. Um, there's still, you know, the Pacific Rim and South America and, and Asia and tons of parts of Europe. I mean, you know, and if you ever, if you ever figure out India, that could be absolutely massive. I mean, there's, there's still a ton of growth in, in this business. And, you know, that, look. Bottom line is, you, Coldplay, the tour that they're on right now, is the biggest tour, uh, the first or second biggest tour of, of of all time. And so, and they're, and it's not like they're an old band, right? They're yep. very contemporary. Mm-hmm. So, if you're looking at, you know, the you know losing Tom Petty is horrible. But you don't want to see anybody pass away, much less a a guy that's a complete icon like Tom Petty. But you know, on the other side of the coin, you've got these artists that are that are filling that void and and bigger than ever. So for every, you know, Rolling Stones that's that's getting older, you you have a you know, an Ed Sheeran, you have uh, Justin Bieber, you have a you know, Sean Mendez, you have the the Coldplay's as I mentioned, you have Harry Styles, you have Nal Horan, the guys from One Direction who have done an incredible job of of reinventing themselves as solo artists after coming out of, you know, what a lot of people would call a boy band but a boy band that sold out stadiums. So you've got a built-in fan base right away. So there's no, there's no lack of artists in terms of, in terms of demand for fans to go see. For, for, for pop music, we'll call it all pop music for now, Joey, just to keep it simple. Uh, again, back in the day, it was an 18 to 34 demo, right? You know what I'm talking about. So you target basically the youth. That's who bought the tickets. That's who bought the records. Uh, and that's who supported the bands. Uh, now millennials, I'm finding, they want experiences, but they want to experience their parents' bands. And they know they got to see these bands before they go, unfortunately. And, and that's what I'm seeing on the streets of Toronto here. Uh, so not only is the 1834s experience their parents' music, but then the parents are going to see their music perhaps for the last time. Uh, so that continues to be the dilemma that, that, that I run through. So back to this 18 to 34 year old demo, aside from the classic rock artist, is there enough coming through to fill the boots for the next 10, 15 years, do you believe? Yeah, there's no question. I think that there's. Look, you're, you're you're looking at these artists, and whether it's you know, look, Journey and Def Leppard are a great example of 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 bands that have toured together in the past that'll probably tour together in in the future. And those are bands; they're not old by any stretch of the imagination. You know, the Eagles are still out there. You have Depeche Mode that's out there. Guns N' Roses is doing incredible business. Metallica has done incredible business on this tour. You know, we can go on and on. I mean, you still got bands like Sticks and REO Speedwagon to tour together and do really well. And then you got younger bands like, you know, Imagine Dragons or Halsey, um, you know, Green Day that you would call a not a younger band, but it's not like they're old, right? So there's there's tons. And then the rap genre is absolutely massive. Of course, the hip hop. Yeah. You know, yeah, hip hop is just it's ridiculous. It, it is, you know. You know Jay Z is the godfather of it, but you have Kanye West, and of course you have Drake, who's massive globally. You have The Weeknd, who is, you know, while he's not pure hip hop, he he 
he does touch that genre. And you've also got the artists like like Chance the Rapper. Um, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's incredible to see how many Kendrick Lamar, like we can go on and on in terms of in terms of this genre that didn't really exist as a touring entity up until four or five years ago, and it's just exploded. Um, look, uh, Joey, you know what we have to do around here, play a few spots, but Jack wants to ask you a couple questions about bots. All right, can you stand by for that one? Sure. Thanks, pal. Stay with us. There's more show still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM640. There you go. A little Coldplay for Joey Vendetta. Yes. I said, I'm going to request, and Joey said, play me some Coldplay. That's exactly what the Wolfman gave him. Joey, thank you for being on the line. Uh, Joey Vendetta on the line here from Live Nation, head of industry relations. Joey, you know, you, you're, you're steeped in, in rock and roll history, certainly in, in, in Canada. Uh, you used to be on Q107 way back when, did a great drive show. You did a big uh, Black Crows concert. Uh, you worked at Live Nation. So you, you're, you're a veteran in this industry, and kudos to you for surviving for, about, I guess, 30 years now in the business, eh? Yeah, it's been a while, that's for sure. Uh, good for you, good for you. Joy, it's Jack here. Just uh, before we get to the bots question that uh, Wolfgang was looking for, uh, you mentioned a bunch of old rock and roll bands. How, how has the concert scene changed in the last, like, 30 years? So what was Guns N' Roses doing, you know, 30 years ago versus what they're doing now? Well, I mean, from a performance standpoint, I think the bands have gotten better. The technology's gotten better. The sound's gotten better. As I said earlier, the fan experience has definitely gotten better. And there's just, there's more selection. There are more bands touring than ever before. And I think that the bands are very cognizant of the experience that they deliver for their fans. And I think a lot of the artists are in better shape. Um, you know, there's probably a, a lot less uh, drug abuse and, and alcohol abuse amongst artists than there used to be. I think artists realize that they have to take care of themselves because this is how they make their living. And it's not, you know, I mean, look, you look at some of the, it's not an easy business, right? You look at what happened with Chris Cornell and Chester Bennington taking their own lives. And this is, this is, you know, a problem. It's a societal issue um, of anxiety and depression that, that doesn't spare anybody, no matter how popular and how famous you are. And I think that there are plenty of artists that are very well aware of this. And there's, you know, a lot of Canadian artists, whether it's Dallas Smith or Alicia Cara, who are are forthcoming with with the challenges that they face. And they share their, their trials and tribulations with their fans to hopefully help the fans. And I think that there's just a lot more transparency and a lot more empathy from the artists in general. And, uh, you know, the the Tragically Hip last year, I guess, did their farewell tour. And that's where the bot question comes in, because I think there was a lot of upset Canadians, the fact that they couldn't get the tickets that they were looking for. And then when they uh, went online, uh, the bots basically bought them all up and then um, resold them to well, the public. Well, they didn't buy so, all of them, but well, hey, look, at the end yeah. of the we, we you know, T- Ticketmaster has a product called Verified, where fans have to register and prove that they are fans of that artist to get access to the tickets. And they get a code, and you combat things as best as you can. I mean, ultimately, when you figure out a solution to one problem, it's it's like whack-a-mole. Then another problem shows up, and that's just the nature of the business. When there's a high profitability in a product, you know, it's, you look at it like I kind of look at it like this: if someone has a friends and family list that they are selling condos, and the builder sells the, you know, lets his friends and family buy a bunch of the condos. And then when the condos go on the market and they go up 50 grand 
and those people flip those condos and make 50 grand, who's, who's protecting the consumer from that? Nobody. Right. And it's just at the end of the day, you know, a concert ticket is a, is a commodity and people are willing to invest in technology to try to get a hold of that commodity to, to sell it on the aftermarket. And we do, you know, a good job to try and capture the revenue for, for the artists and also give the fans as much of a, you know, you're not going to get fake tickets. You're going to get a seamless experience when you buy it off Ticketmaster. And, and when you buy verified tickets, you know that they're real. And the difference is when you buy them on a secondary site, um, you know, like a StubHub, they, they could not be real. They'll give you your money back, but they're not going to guarantee that you get into the show. <laughs> right. When you buy them at Ticketmaster, you're guaranteed that you're getting into the show because the tickets are real. So with the proposal that Ontario legislation, has that changed your business model at all? Have you had to adapt or do you guys already have the technology in place and uh, you'll just uh, continue on with what you uh, previously had? No, I think it's it's an ongoing conversation, right? Yeah. The, the, the legislation is enacted to protect the consumer and you understand where they're coming from. And then on the other side of the coin, you know, we already protect the consumer and we the consumer is first and foremost in our mind along with uh, with the artist and that's who we're here to serve right the artists and the consumers the artists and the fans and that's who we care about the bottom line is you have to do the right thing regardless of legislation and that's what we've tried to do and then look when you have a, a situation like tragically hip that's a once in a lifetime event it's a guy in one of the most iconic canadian bands in history is unfortunately not going to be with us uh, forever and he announces that and then goes on tour that's never happened in the history of music where somebody announced that they were dying and they were going to do a farewell tour i mean it's it's mind-boggling that it actually happened and that he was able to do it so I mean, no wonder there was unprecedented demand. And, and again, the secondary market saw the opportunity to make the money, and they went out and tried to make the money. And I'm sure they did make money in a lot of instances, but we also did manage to get the majority of the tickets into the fans' hands, which is what we care about and what the bands care about. I was going to say, I found that interesting because my wife went on just being a person, and I guess she was competing against, like you said, the bots. Uh, and uh, she actually got four. Uh, which was surprising. They're actually good tickets. So that and that was through Ticketmaster. So, so Joey, what you have to do here is um, you have to get Kate Bush to tour. Okay, uh, that, that's over you. Yeah, she's different. she's uh, she doesn't tour that much, but hey, hopefully I think she had one tour one tour in her entire career. And again, yeah, hopefully back she'll be be back again. Right, let's hope so, uh, folks. That was Joey Vendetta on the line from Live Nation Entertainment. Joey, thank you very much for joining us. An absolute treat to all. Folks, hope you have a good weekend. Hi-Fi Radio AM 640. Looking forward to it each and every Saturday morning to be just that, your host. You've been listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email wolfandjack at wolfgangkline.com. For the podcast of today's show, go to 640toronto.com. New shows every week. Hi-Fi Radio, for the love of money. We'll see you next week.